He's thinking, oh, he can't see straight. He's, he's so old. And, and, and he says, I know what I'm doing. I'm choosing to bless the younger son. And later we see it again when David, when Samuel comes, the prophet Samuel comes to find the, the king, the anointed king of Israel. And where's David? He's out in the fields. All the rest of the brothers that are impressive and large and muscular and, and intelligent and popular who seem to carry themselves well in public, they're there. And the prophet says, this isn't the one. The one's still not here. The Spirit of God says, this isn't, don't be impressed with this. His flesh is saying, that's the guy. This guy has to be the guy. Oh, man, surely this guy. But his spirit is saying, no, no, something's wrong. So this is, Philippians 2, this is not, a, this is not against the grain of how God has always behaved. It's just against the grain of how Jesus deserves to be treated. So he leaves glory where he's worshipped in, in blinding light and the warmth of God's love and his, and his presence. And there's, there's just such a... I don't even think we have the comprehension, really, of what heaven's like. But the idea of leaving it to come into a world so, so corrupted by sin and selfishness and, and, and where death rules and where Satan's kingdom is, is treating people like playthings. And, and that's really why he came. He couldn't stand idly by and watch what he made and what he loved suffer this way and do nothing. But he leaves. He leaves the manifest presence of God to build for himself a temple in which to dwell in Mary's womb. This is the temple he chooses. He chooses humanity. And so now he enters the stable and he's out back with the animals and his poor parents. And I know they're poor because they offer a dove when they go up to Jerusalem, which is, if you look in your Old Testament, that's an indication that if you're too poor to afford a larger, more expensive animal, you could, this was an acceptable offering. And so this is who he chooses, the meek, the quiet, the afterthoughts, the overlooked, the last, the forgotten, the least. This is who he chooses to dwell among. And this is, this is God's idea of putting his glory on full display. Is to hide it among the poor. Behold your God. Hebrews chapter 2 says, And furthermore, it's not the angels who will control the future world we're talking about. For in one place the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or the Son of Man that you should care for him? He's trying to talk about what real humanity is. He says, Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels, humans, and you crowned them with glory and honor, us, frail, made of flesh, and yet bearing the image of God. And he says, uh, you gave them authority over all things. And we say, who? Us? Yeah. And then the author of Hebrews says this. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing's left out. But we have not yet seen all things put put under the authority of the sons and daughters of God. We haven't seen that yet. And then he says this. But what we do see Jesus. Isn't that a fascinating verse? We don't see the world operating under God's king, kingly reign through the human representatives like, it, like he intended in Genesis 1 and 2 and went wrong in Genesis 3. He's put everything under our charge 
but it's not operating that way now. But we see Jesus, he says. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he's now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now, Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I'll proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I'll praise you among the assembly of your people. And he also said, I'll put my trust in him, I and the children God's given me. Because God's children are human, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die. You get it? You get the logic? If he stays God and he just shows up and makes an appearance, like in the Old Testament, he just shows up on the mountain in his glory, he can't die. How could God die? By definition, he is life. It's impossible. So only as a human could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. What is going on? Only in this way, by fully becoming one of us, I want you to, that's, that's the point of the whole chapter of Hebrews 2 that I'm reading here. Only in this way, by fully becoming one of us, could he set free all who live their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. And we also know that the son didn't come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. And then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing. He's able to help us when we are being tested. In the history of the church, the, the majority of the time, the, the theology that becomes standard is not necessarily born in times of peace. If you become a student of church history, which if you become a student of God, you eventually become a student of the Bible, and hopefully then you'll also become a student of the history of how the Bible's been interpreted. Otherwise, we repeat things, foolish things we could avoid by not paying attention to the mistakes we've made and the things we've gotten right over the last 2,000 years. But as I, as I dug into church history, it was the main thing I took in both college and seminary. I just took all the church history I could, all the historical theology I could. And one of the things I noticed is that the bright display of the beauty of God in our thinking was every single time born in a context of conflict. It is by fighting over truth that the church arrived at the healthy biblical truth. And the reason that happens is because so many dumb thoughts, bad thoughts, unbiblical thoughts creep their way into the people of God. And then we've got to figure out what is the truth. And one of my... There was a sermon I wanted to do a couple years back called Christmas Heresies. 
and it, just because that title makes me chuckle, you know, at a time when everyone is thinking you know, Christmas cookies, uh, overeating, uh, sitting by the fire, wearing ugly sweaters, drinking eggnog, getting fat, and traveling long hours in the van to get to Indiana. Or, or is that just me? Okay, that's, we're leaving right after church to go do this. At a time when everyone's thinking, you know, Christmas time, happy time, presents, family, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm thinking of the wisdom and the brilliance that was fought over tooth and nail for, for the first 400 years of the church. Which is, how do we understand Jesus? Is he, is he a really good man who's filled with the Spirit, who leads us by example... Or is he actually God? And if he is God, does that mean he's the Father? And how does that all work? So for 400 years, the first Christians wrestled with who is Jesus and what does it mean now that he has come? How can we worship him if he's not the Father and there's only one God? Can you see how that's a problem? Can you see how the doctrine of the Trinity messed with us? It took us literally 400 years to get it hammered out. And I know some people would be like, well, the winners get to write the story, so I'm sure that the real truth was lost. And I'm like, you know? Because they're also the ones who picked the Bible books. Yeah, they did. They did pick the Bible books. Most of them suffered and lived through persecution. But here's the deal. Those were the guys that were discipled by the disciples. Okay, that's a talk for a different day. But this morning, I want to talk about Athanasius. He lived in the early to mid-4th century, so the 300s. He was in a church in North Africa. You remember the, the famous library of Alexandria that burned down and we're like, oh my goodness, we wish we had that library because that would have had all the wisdom and the knowledge of the ancient world and we lost it in a big fire. That's the town he was from. A brilliant, a brilliant man. And in the church in Alexandria, there was another leader in the church named Arius. You ever heard of Arius? You ever heard of Arianism? Arius began to teach people that Jesus was a righteous, holy, blameless man, but there was a time when Jesus didn't exist, and then there was a time when Jesus was created, and that the Spirit of God came upon Jesus, and he was the most full representation of what the Father is like that we've ever seen. Athanasius said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He's God. He is the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos that the Apostle John talked about in John chapter 1 that said the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is, he is the one through whom, that Paul in Colossians says, through whom everything that has been made, whether visible or invisible, or thrones or rulers or powers or anything else, everything that's been made has been made through Jesus and for Jesus. And we're not wrong to worship Jesus because he's the creator, not just, not just a, a spirit-anointed man. And Arius said, no, 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 but, there, but there's only one God. This is what you're describing is an impossibility. And Arius was so effective at convincing people that, and, and his little tribe became so aggressive in sharing with people that so many people became Arian Christians that whole groups were, were evangelized by Arian missionaries. And there came a time when Athanasius belief that Jesus is creator who became 
a part of the creation, was almost lost to history. There was a time when Athanasius was hiding out with some monks in the, in the desert, writing furiously letters and arguments to defend what he knew was the truth that the apostles had handed down to the churches. And I don't know if you know this. There is a little phrase called Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. I imagine that there were days where he felt as the whole world has gone after his opponent from his home church who's teaching things about his glorious, beautiful Jesus that make his heart so grieved and angry. I'm sure there were days when he felt it's all failing. The whole world's gone after lies. The glory of Jesus is being maligned. The true beauty of the gospel is being lost. And some people might say, well, these are just quibbling over details, just, just you know, like you know, theologians arguing over how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. And, and Athanasius would say, no, it's so much more than that. Because if Arius is right, then we have no gospel. All we have is yet another good example. If Arius is right, we don't have a God who comes. If Arius is right, we only have a God who, who influences people. If, if Arius is right, the deep problem with humanity, which is within us, which is how selfish we have become because the image of God has been marred and bent, and we've inherited that from Adam, that never gets set right. Because we don't have a God who's come and recreated humanity. Let me read you some of his arguments. I have, uh, what do I have, nine arguments. This is from one of his little, little, his most famous writing, which was in the year 300 and what, 19, something like that? Yeah, 300, bless you. That was an incredibly, uh, <laughs> here's, here's, is this a weird sermon? This is a weird sermon, right? Let's talk about, let's talk about a church father who, who like saved the gospel, like, so that now we take it for granted because it's covered the whole world and now it's the dominant view. And, and people, like now when you talk about this, you kind of have this whole, yeah, we know the end of the story. Like Darth Vader dies and then he becomes a good guy. We know the end of the story. Like, you know what I mean? The first time you watch The Empire Strikes, or not The Empire Strikes, the, the final one, what's that one? Thank you. The first time you watch that, you're like, what's going to happen? And then after that, every time you rewatch it, you're, you, you just, you're calm, right? We know the end of the story is orthodoxy wins, the glory of God is preserved. The doctrine of the Trinity is the truth. We know that. But he didn't know. He sacrificed everything. Just thinking, God, this can't fail. How, this, this gospel has to succeed. Here's his, here's his arguments. These are just some of his points. Number one, repentance alone cannot remedy fallen humanity's true problem, which is our nature. Arius is saying, humans aren't that bad. We've just been mistaught. We just need a good example to follow. And Athanasius says, no, we have a nature problem. We need more than repentance. We need rebirth. Only the creator can do that. Only the creator can create in us a new heart, a new nature. We need Christ in us, not just an example to follow. We need Jesus as gift, not just Jesus as example. Point two, he says, The power of the law of sin and death must be broken and none of us can do it. We don't just need yet another human who's a little bit better at following the Spirit than we are. We need the power of sin and death to be broken. And he says this, The power of sin and death 
was completely spent on Jesus, on the cross, so that if we're in him, it doesn't have anything left over to get us with. It's an interesting perspective, right? Thus, incarnation. Third point, Athanasius says, only God is worthy to offer himself for us. That's a fascinating point. The only one who would be worthy is God, but none of us are God. And the only one who could stand in our place would have to be a man. Therefore, God became man so that he could offer himself. Thus, incarnation. Fourth point Athanasius makes, all of us have fallen under the spell of a great satanic conspiracy and the whole planet has been duped and blinded in our hearts to the beauty and love of God. None of us values God as we ought. None of us. We've been duped. We've been blinded. We've been deceived. And the only way that we can re-see clearly again is for incarnation to happen. Incarnation, death, and resurrection is God beating this demonic conspiracy by restoring to us his image and likeness and exposing and stripping this demonic conspiracy of its power. That's incarnation. Five. Since the problem, sin and death, came through a human, the first Adam, the solution must also come through a human, the last Adam. He's just basically quoting Romans chapter 5. Jesus was sent to free us from the power of sin and death and plunge us into righteousness and everlasting life. Since the problem came through a human, the answer must come through a human, thus incarnation. Six, we were all ruled by false gods, idols, false gods, idols. And so God became one of us to fully and decisively reveal the folly of all the idols and the true nature of the the living God. Now, seven. We are created in God's image, but in order to be restored to what that true image looks like, Christ must make that image known. These are repetitive. Anyone notice that? The whole point of every single one of them is that's why he became a human. Such a big deal, though. And I'm telling you right now, when I started reading church history, I thought... Really? We're 200 years in and all they're talking about is Jesus still on this humanity and divinity thing? Then I was like, we're 300 years in and this is still... Garth, you remember this? Did you feel the same way? We're 300 years in and this is what they still want to talk about? We're 400 years in and this is all they still want to talk about? And it wasn't until like the 10th century that they started talking about other things? And then by the 16th century, I was suddenly like, finally, now now they're sounding like me. Protestants. (laughs) Okay. Eight, why would God give all humans everywhere? This is Athanasius' question. Why would God give all humans everywhere an insatiable desire to know him and not satisfy that hunger with the food that it's meant to be satisfied by? If God made you hungry, it's because there's such a thing in the world called food. And God gave humanity a hunger for God. But if Jesus doesn't come, then we don't get what we crave and what we were born for. Thus, incarnation. That's a fascinating argument, by the way. Did anyone else think that's a fascinating argument? Jesus came because God gave us all a hunger and he meant to fulfill it. Nine, fallen humans could never reveal that image to each other fully. 
therefore, incarnation. I want you to think about this real briefly. Before the incarnation, God was God, right? He was always God. After the incarnation, he took humanity into the Godhead. Is Jesus still fully human right now? It's not a trick question. The answer is yes. Is he ever going to stop being human for eternity? So I need you to think this through with me. That means that forever, forever, a human sits on the throne of the universe. What does that do to your view of humanity? It's unbelievable. He became one of us to become one with us. Paul, this freaks Paul out so much that he says things like, when he died, you died. It's not about you dying to sin. It's about he, he died for sin once for all. And in that moment, you died. And if you're just connected rightly to him, boom, it happens for you too. And you're no longer a slave to sin. He says, Paul says this, when Jesus was raised from the dead, you got raised from the dead. You got seated in heavenly places. And that's why when you pray, Father answers. That's why when you say, come Holy Spirit, he comes. That's why when you open your heart to him, he comes. It's because Jesus made himself one with you. You didn't do that. You didn't do that for him. See, one of my problems with religion, which is our efforts to get to please God and to reconnect with God, is that it tries an external solution, an external human solution to an internal problem that only God can fix. And the gospel is not rebellion or religion, but some other thing where Jesus makes himself one with us, and then he comes in and he takes up residence within us, and the whole Christian life is him living it through us. You with me? That's why he became human. And if that's true, then spirituality, if for 30 years he lived as one of us, as a normal one of us, then the goal of spirituality is not to become less human. The goal of spirituality is not to become so mystical that like you, you, you leave this human stuff behind. The goal is just to become love in the practical, tangible stuff of normal human life. Now, trust me, I, like I'm, I'm the guy who wants, I would love if I was so spiritual that when I walk past people, they just fell out on the ground. If they were sick, they got healed. If they were lost, they'd go, oh my word, I just felt this love. And then they would be like, who's this person? I'd be like, it's Jesus. And they'd be like, I want to know him. I wish all that would happen. I wish all that would happen. And some of that happened in Jesus' life, but for 30 years, it was mostly undercover. And if the incarnation is true, then the goal of spirituality is not to somehow transcend the physical plane, but to simply be love in the middle of the physical plane. And if you do that, you probably won't get a lot of press, make a big dent, be noticed, be thanked, cause much of a stir. It's so ordinary and so tangible as to be almost offensive to those of us who want so much power that we want everyone reeling in our, in our presence. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. To be around somebody who's truly humble and truly Christ-like is basically just to have someone who pays attention to you and gives you their heart in a kind way when you're around them. Yeah. You know? 
Can you imagine how, if, I imagine Jesus was probably a good listener, which meant he would sit and listen to people spout their ignorance for a long time without necessarily needing to fix it all. Just something to think about, right? I don't know. I think the, the incarnation is challenging for those of us who, like me, I'm, I'm, I'm a diehard charismatic. Like, I want so much spirit of God that I can't handle it. And Jesus is what that looks like. <laughs> he can handle that. Any, anything that you are born into, he was a carpenter or a carpenter's kid for 30 years or whatever. Whatever your station in life, whatever your job is, he came in the flesh and lived a human life so that his spirit could dwell in you and that he, you could actually live out whatever it would look like if Jesus was in your shoes. You, you follow me? The Spirit of God came to you so that he, the Spirit of God didn't come to your life to do something different than what he did in the life of Jesus. The Spirit of God comes into your life and to my life so that he can do in and through you and me exactly what he did in the life of Jesus. And you go, yeah, except for dying for sin. And I go, well, oddly enough, Paul said that he's still rejoicing that he gets to suffer for God's people and fill up what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the church. So even that is still got some information in that folder. And you go, yeah, but we don't die for the sins of the world the way Jesus did. Yeah, I know, I know, but we do die for the sins of the world. Kind of like Jesus did. Yeah, I know, Tim, I hear what you're saying, Tim, but it's not the same. Yeah, I know it's not the same. But it's still there. There's some verses from Colossians I just want to run through real quick because, you know, they're in my heart and I want to, just to express this reality. Jesus became one of us so that he could become one with us, so that he could dwell within us, so that his life in us is our life. You got that? Just nod. <laughs> Thank you. Listen to these verses. Colossians 1.27. For God wanted them, Gentiles, to know the ri- that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Paul says, this is the secret that was hidden in ages past, but now has been revealed to him. This is the secret. Christ lives in you. And that gives you the hope of sharing his glory. Christ in you. This is the gospel secret Paul's all obsessed with. This is why he's willing to die rather than shut up about Jesus. Christ in you. I don't care who you are. I don't care your background. I don't care your ethnicity. I don't care your gender or your age. I don't care if you're educated or not. I don't care where you come from. I don't care how bad your past was or how righteous your past was. You need Jesus and you can have him and he can live, with, he can live in you. And if you get him, you get the point of what you're alive to be about. Colossians 2, 2, through, 2 and 3. Paul says, I want these believers to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ himself. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ, okay, a little background. Greek Hellenistic Gnostic thinkers 
viewed the physical plane as a plane that is too dirty and yucky for a spiritual being to come to. And their goal of their spirituality was to get free of lust, anger, greed, uh, the desire for more and more food, gluttony, right? All the sins that Paul will identify as the sins of the flesh, right? The Greeks would have said, absolutely, that's disgusting. And that's why God would never become one of us. And that's why the true goal of spirituality, says a Greek person, is to get out of these stupid meat sacks and get into the spirit plane where everything's pure, and they actually thought that in the, in the three levels of heaven, right, the first heaven where, where the birds fly, the second heaven where the angels and demons fight, and the third heaven where God dwells, they thought that if you weren't pure enough, the angels might stop you and say you don't have access to get further. And so they had to have special spiritual accomplishments and fastings and passwords and codes and secret teachings to become spiritual and clean and empowered enough to navigate through to get to the third heaven where they called the fullness, the playroom. It's a Greek word called the fullness the playroma where God dwells. Now, I want you to hear what I just said in this verse. For in Christ lives all the fullness, playroma, of God. Whoa, what? In a human body. Okay, now their brains just broke. In Christ lives all the fullness in a human body. They go, nope, that can't happen. That's the opposite. God would never do that. Flesh is bad, spirit is good, and our goal is to get out of here. And Paul says, no, the fullness, the pleroma, dwelt in a body. And then the next verse says, and you have been given fullness in him through your union with him. This is mind-blowing stuff. And we're blind to it as modern Americans who just read the Bible in English and don't know the history. We're blind to it. But if we just go back, understand what he's really saying and let it come and let it break our brains wide open and go, oh my goodness, the incarnation was more scandalous to the Greeks than the crucifixion was to the Jews. Do you understand that, right? The incarnation is offensive and scandalous to Greeks in the same way that a crucified Messiah was offensive and scandalous to Jews. And we've got them both and they're both true. And I think they're scandalous to us. Physical life is good. Humanity is good and worth saving. Like for the history of the church, I'm going to just say enough of that. For the history of the church, humanity has had such a, the Christian church has had such a low view of humans. We've said, oh, humans are like not worth saving. It's a mystery why God would ever want to. Why would he love me? Because we actually are looking at how we became And measuring our worth by how we became in Adam instead of what we were made as and what we were made for originally. We've got to see Jesus as revealing what humanity is really made to look like. I feel like that's enough. Why don't you go ahead and stand? Whoever's on the prayer team, you can. You don't need me to tell you to come up here, to come up here. What time is it, guys? Who's got a clock?
Okay. That, no wonder. I was, no wonder I was feeling that. Five after? What does that mean? What does of mean? Thank you. Six after and five of. Somebody's clocks are not aligned here. I believe, I believe the phones more than I believe the wind-ups. So, do you know what I'm saying? Okay. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Thank you for this truth that you're, you're so unwilling to see what you've made perish, that you've crossed every gap. Thank you for this love that you've, you've made real and tangible and knowable. Thank you, God, for the beauty of Jesus. Tell Athanasius thanks for me today, God. I appreciate what he did. And Holy Spirit, I pray for more, more of you in our lives. Teach us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in you, Jesus. Put this mind in us that was also in you, Jesus, not clinging to our privileges, but taking on the nature of holy, sacrificial love. God, we thank you. Would you teach us? We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would shape our hearts, shape our minds, shape. Let the, Father, we ask that you would change our minds so that you, Father, look just like Jesus. And those parts of us where we see Jesus incorrectly, give us upgrades, God. Let us see you clearly, Jesus. I ask that you'd set us free, God, of the stuff that entangles us. And I ask for more power, God, to see like you and therefore look like you. And God, this, this, these, these days, this week, as, we, as we're celebrating Christmas, I'm asking that we would be blown away by the miracle and the mystery that our God became one of us and all that that entails. If you have anything, uh, amen. If you have anything that you want to be partnered with in prayer, come to the front. If you want to pray over each other, pray over each other. I'm going to go to the back and I think I might hit specific, not physically, I'm not going to hit you. I might feel led to pray some extended things over some of you uh, specifically. Um, I feel like that. I feel like there's a a strong revelatory gift on me today to, to prophesy. So I'm going to make myself available to do that. Love you guys. Merry Christmas.